welcome to This Is Her Story. In this episode, I interview Reverend Sharon Norman. She is the pastor of Everyday Worship at Saginaw Valley Church. And this interview, it hits the ground running. We start talking about the theology of worship and the challenge of establishing diverse congregations. And if you need a pep talk, then hang in there with us until the end. It was a fun and feisty conversation, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hey, Sharon. Hello. You have a new assignment. I'm so excited to hear all about it. It's been exciting, and the journey God has had us on has been absolutely amazing. I've been in the Church of the Nazarene now for 16 years, oh, wow. for 17 years, and I uh, started at Grand Rapids International Fellowship. I came from the Baptist Church, Missionary oh. Baptist Church, and so I had never heard of Nazarene Church before I got here. That's just a little backdrop, but after 11 years of serving in Grand Rapids, God called us to serve at Kankakee First Church. It was so out of, I would have never thought of leaving Grand Rapids at all. Oh, it was so out of the norm. But it was in that four years that God was preparing my husband and I, I believe, for what he's called us to in this season. And so while there, I served as worship pastor at Kankakee First Church and had, if you're a music person or if you served in music ministry, there's kind of this idea that that's just what you do. There's not going to be another, you may fill in to help with some new stuff, <laughs> right. or you may fill in pulpit supply, but you just kind of think you're going to die as a music pastor. Right. It's just how you are. And so along the way, I was finishing up my undergrad at NBC and just started feeling these, these heart tugs okay. for something other than music. And just, I didn't really know what to do with that. There were even moments where I felt like I was cheating on my calling that I, yeah. I was starting to have this heart tug for something else. And what he was heart tugging for was this idea of what it would look like for the community to be, for us to reach the community holistically. Okay. And get, got a real passion for that. Didn't understand where that was coming from. I was nearing the end. I had about another six or eight weeks left to my class. Just started asking God, okay, what next? I know there's more education, but what next? I'm feeling this tug outside of the church to serve out significantly outside of the church. Right. Maybe I'll just go get my MOL, Masters of Organizational Leadership. I was like, that'll make me, a secular degree will, will make me able to go into the world. And, and God just kept nudging. Eventually, I would, there were two significant things that took place was a vision I had of the church and there was the foundation and there were Christ followers on this foundation and they were distinctly Christ followers on this foundation. And when they left, they weren't distinctly Christ followers anymore once they left the church. And then there was a second image of the walls of the church coming down. There's still the foundation, but the Christ followers didn't know where the foundation ended because the walls weren't there anymore. And so when they left the foundation, they were still distinctly Christ followers because they didn't have something that told them they didn't have to be anymore. And as a result, they were engaging 
the people around them that had not been on this foundation, the people around them were being impacted by these Christ followers being uniquely Christ followers. And all of a sudden, the foundation started getting wider and wider because the people who were encountering the Christ, encountering the Christ followers were wanting to know Christ. And so all of a sudden, you had these Christians. Just one of the things stuck with me from that image is the walls of the church can become a barrier and a border for both those inside and those outside. Right. And how do we do church in a way where it's borderless, where it's barrierless, and the foundation remains, and the Christ followers just have, they just act distinctly like Jesus. That provides some challenges because there is something that happens when we walk into the walls of the church. That was the first thing. The second thing that took place was a conversation between two brothers in the faith, and they challenged me on my decision to get an MOL. Jasper Taylor, who's gospel, used to be the gospel choir director at Olivet, he said to me, he said, Sharon, you've been leading in the church for 16 years now. You don't need a degree to tell you how to lead. Take some more classes if you want to get, go to some seminars and do some webinars if you want to become a better leader. He said, but do you know, you know how to lead it, but do you know how to build it? He said, I think the problem in the church is that we're comfortable with letting someone else or some other things build the church and we'll just lead it. And he said, but there's something when the Christ follower builds the church with the tenets of scripture, also having the wisdom of the things that we need from a world's perspective, but not letting it take over. He said, we have a lot of movements in the church that resulted in the business sector having a lot more say than the Jesus sector. And what if you went and learned how to build it? Here I am getting my MBA and <laughs> hit the conversation in December. God made it clear that my assignment at First Church was done. What's odd about that is that there it wasn't like I'm done and I'm moving to something. Right. So it's like, God, okay, I'll resign. What are we going to, you know, there's no job. I just always envisioned that I'd leave First Church to a, an assignment. Right. And that's what God had in mind. I said, okay. My husband was going to school full time. I was still, I'm still in school or it was still in school. And so that means no income for my job. Right. Okay, here we go. It's resigned and it was official in January. And so we stayed at First Church. I didn't want to wait and linger and feel like he needed to give me a couple more words about it or he said it the first time, and I just decided, okay, you said it, that settles it, I'll do it. So resigned, and it was in May that Pastor Randy from Saginaw Valley called and said, you know what, and he, what was so interesting, he was on the verge of leaving, and he said, God, if you don't give me what to do, I can't be here. Right. And uh, God woke him up in the middle of the night and gave him a vision for Saginaw Valley, and it included calling us, my husband and I. Wonderful. And so he called us in May. We decided within a month that we were coming to Saginaw. And so my role, I am the associate pastor of everyday worship. And so that encompasses Sunday, but it also encompasses Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday. And it's the idea that the gathered body is vital for the Christ follower, but the sending call for the gathered body is just as important and we have to give attention to it. And so part of my job is to develop initiatives with community partners 
where the church can come alongside. We have a massive building, and so provide opportunities where the community can best serve the community. And we come alongside and say, here, how can we help you? And so right now we have a Head Start program in our building. And one of my responsibilities will be to develop opportunities for the church to connect with the teachers and the families of Head Start. So that's kind of my going, the stuff I do Monday through Saturday. I would also, for anyone who feels led to do a Bible study or small group in their neighborhood, I can give them resources and uh, give them guidance on how to accomplish that, especially if they're in a setting where some of their neighborhood friends are unsaved and not being too uh, churchy, (laughs) but being very welcoming and what that could look like. So that is my, it's, it's taking what we do as a gathered body on Sunday and living it out Monday through Saturday. And so that, the role that I have at the church and my job is in shepherding the church. So it's been pretty exciting and I didn't have to leave music completely. No. I give leadership to our music ministry, specifically in the area of theology, making sure our songs point to who we are but also what we believe is Nazarenes. Oh, that's um, so important. Oh, I, we just talk about that a little bit because I, I think our absolutely. churches miss that so much. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'll be visiting a congregation and they're singing a song that is so theologically different in contrast to what we mm-hmm. actually believe as as Wesleyan holiness denomination. So just talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. I would say that has been, see, that has been one of the things over the last last four or five years that it has probably been a very big thing for me, especially, you know, when you learn more, <laughs> you know, I think God wants you to kind of use what he's pouring into you. And one of the things that I just hum a culture, because I don't think this is just a problem in the Nazarene church. Right. I believe we've outsourced our worship. Yes. I believe we've allowed the music industry to say, this is what's hype and right. And that even happens in gospel music yes. in Christian music. This is what's hype. This is what's right. This is the sound right now. This is what we go with. And it doesn't have to be scripturally correct. So you have people who are handling a theological idea under, again, this business premise, and they're not, their scripture and their business ain't matching. And so as a result, you get, I even think there's things that are sung that wouldn't even fall under Calvin's idea. (laughs) (laughs) I just... That's true. It's like, what are you talking? I mean, there is no, we can't even apply it to any theology. Right. It's just something that's, it sounds good. Right. And so from a Wesleyan holiness perspective, we have to absolutely be discerning about songs that limit the power of the spirit in our lives. In other words, songs that tell us we're going to keep falling. Songs that tell us, and we, we have those songs. One song that I just I'm amazed that people could sing. It was a Lauren Dangle Dangle song. And can it be? It starts with, I am guilty. And it's like, sweetie, to sing that as a part of our opening or in the beginning of our service with Christ followers, no, the sun has set you free. You aren't guilty anymore. And if you walk around with that idea, you're going to keep this cyclical behavior of bondage. Now, if you want to sing it after a message to people who aren't saved, Go for it. But we get the jukebox going. And I think sometimes we just wear a jukebox. We play what's popular on the radio because 
Somebody told us that if we have nice contemporary music, that will grow our church. No, music isn't what grows your church. The lights and the mirrors aren't what grow your church. People feeling valued and people feeling feeling known is what will grow your church. People will, will maybe come, I'm going to stay there as their good music. Right. There has to be more that connects the individual. And I think somebody, we got bought into this idea that what was fresh and new and hip, regardless of the theological premise, is what we needed. And there's a danger in that because we sing our theology. We sing our theology, which is why the worship pastor, the music leader, has to be very clear. You don't you don't want to sing Jesus paid it all right after the message on a Sunday where the preacher's preaching about tithing. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, you just don't want to do that. Help, so, help the preacher out a little. You know, the, right. Yeah. It's like your, your message is dead in the water before you even get going because Jesus paid it all. You know, I think it's the same premise when you put songs that are theologically inaccurate against a preaching that preaches something different or vice versa. But I think we see it a lot in our music. And part of that, in, in my opinion, I think we are sweet tend to in the Nazarene church. We require our pastors who are preaching to be Nazarene. We do not require our music leaders to be Nazarene. Oh, absolutely. And there's a danger there. And I think we go for who is best and we give them leadership. Now, Joe Knight is who hired me. And again, I was missionary Baptist. He took a chance and it worked out. (laughs) (laughs) But there are... There are many who are not of the Nazarene faith. He, and knew, they're he not knew you were Wesleyan holiness at heart. <laughs> he knew uh, it. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I, I actually had never been taught the once saved, always saved. Okay. So that was a new premise when I became a Nazarene, you know, always make the Baptist jokes. And that was the one thing they would point out. And I'm like, but I never learned that. That isn't, yeah. I didn't have a pastor tell me that. So was it more like, like Missionary Alliance for you? It could be. I'm not I'm not sure. Now I will say the emphasis on the second work of grace was not there. Okay. Entire sanctification was not like salvation was important with the expectation that, that sanctification entirely would come. It was just the progression. So nobody emphasized it. They emphasized the day you were saved. And so but I always felt that our preaching did stop short of going beyond the grave. Yeah. We preached up to the grave and the, and the resurrection, but we didn't apply the resurrection as the power of the resurrection as a possibility for me to abandon the grave as well. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. It's, that would be, you know, and then there's a historical narrative in the African-American church. Okay. There's a historical narrative that can goes you, with can that. Can you talk and, a little bit so, about that? Because I think it's so important for, you know, whoever's going to be listening to this. Will you just talk a little bit about that? that narrative sure so there were in slavery there were two there were two camps there was the methodist church okay and the back and depending on which the slave master was a part of was what he would proselytize his his slaves okay and so one of the things that would happen generally you would have a slave who could read who would learn the bible and eventually the slave said we don't want to do church with the master we'll do our own church you have these two camps of slave methodist and baptist what they bring to that the thing that identified on either side was the children of israel's narrative 
there was a great identification as a slave right. to the children of Israel. And so Pharaoh was seen as the slave master. And so you can imagine what year that Lincoln uh, emancipated the slave. We have something in, in the black church called a watch night service. Now, I know that exists in white churches, but in black churches, it was the night, December 31st, that slaves were waiting for emancipation proclamation to, to take shape. Really? So they had a watch night service. And to this day, my mom's church and the church that my husband and I attended have a watch night service. There's a significance to that. And so at any rate, uh, one of the one of the, the Israelite narrative, it's, it's called a liberation theology, some would call it. There There is this identification of bondage. Right. And sometimes that that identification of bondage for for African Americans is the idea that we are still in the wilderness and we are still awaiting the promised land. And in each generation, generally there is something that comes up that tells us we haven't reached our promised land. Right. And that is the place that African Americans live. Right. Especially, you know, there are enough things in our country today that would point to but still, even 50 years after civil rights, 50 plus years after civil rights, there are still issues that tell us we aren't living in our promised land yet. Right. Absolutely. So problem is, problem with liberation the theology, in my opinion, is that if white people are seen as Pharaoh, then there will always be a chasm in the church. And that is sometimes what, what happens. And for the other side... There, you know, the separation, the separation between races has lasted as long as slavery. It yeah. just has. And so we're talking 400 years of a mentality between two, two different cultures in our country. And that doesn't break overnight. But that narrative is strong, which is why it can be very easy sometimes for African-American churches to stay away from, from gathering of okay. all the, of, of the denominations. Okay. It can be very easy because that that's been a part of our historical narrative, unfortunately. At any rate, experience right. over the last 16 years, it really has been there. There is no going into both, and it's very hard to go into both because it's two different, two culturally different words, worlds. It's yes, it is not easy at all. So. So what you're saying is you'll have a primarily white church with some African-American or an African-American church with a few white folks, but yeah, not really a blend, right? Yeah, it's, I think in, and I don't know why it is in the Nazarene church. I'm sure there's one or two that exist, and there might be a little bit more, but a true blending of cultures is not, there. it takes a whole lot of humility and, and a willingness to say, I will accept the other man, and I will accept the other man's leadership. That's where it gets hard. Right. And I think we see some of that. I mean, if you look in the Nazarene church, and you go to the, if you would look at the general church leadership outside of our GSs, because our GS board is, is more diverse than it's ever been. Right. But if you look at leadership at our general headquarters, or DSs, how many African-American or Hispanic DSs do you have or female DSs you have in relation to white male DS? Well, I think or we only have one female. Yeah, in the United States. We have a significant problem here, and we yeah. got to 
and it's not because there's not qualified individuals. Right. That's not the case. I think there there comes a point where there has to be a willingness to say, I will be led by someone who doesn't look like me. And I will trust that they know what they're doing. And I will I will pray for that and that probably a bit not as difficult, you know, General Assembly. Who's on the steering committee? You know, all of those things, if they're not populated multiculturally, you aren't going to get a, it's very hard to get a multicultural output. You know, that's different. Now, on the flip side, attended the National Black uh, Nazarene Conference. It was, first of all, it was like I'd grown up. The one thing you find out about black churches is that you get one, you get them all in style and, and how churches done. I mean, it is. It was just like I grew up with a holiness message. <laughs> it was no different than I had ever experienced. But what I found in that setting, you know, there were moments where I felt if Randy or Joe, these are the pastors that I've served with, or, you know, Joanne were sitting in here, would they feel ostracized? Would they feel like, you know, would they feel moments where I can say yes? There would have been moments where you would have been comfortable and you would have uncomfortable and you would have felt like a visitor. And that's not okay either. I'm not sure what all that we as the church have to do. One of it, probably one thing, I think our narratives in the world can sometimes affect our ability to forget the message and the call of Christ. I think it can. Right now, politics is incredibly charged. Right. And our politics and our view of certain things can sometimes trump scripture, which fascinates, absolutely fascinates me. And Christians, it's like, why are we arguing some, as people hear your <laughs> podcast may even turn off at this point, but okay. why are we arguing over flags? As Christ followers, why are we arguing over flags? Are you kidding? I mean, we are literally, but we have become so sold to our identity as Americans that it developed an equality with our identity as created in his image. And that can never happen. Scripturally, that's not supposed to happen. And so fight over flags. We fight over presidents. Oh, my word, if we put this much energy in the Great Commission. Yes. Yes. The other things may fix itself based on our putting this much energy in the Great Commission. And as a result, the world's ability to hear Christ's message is becoming tainted a bit by our preoccupation, the church's preoccupation, with things that aren't distinctly Jesus. I will herald that all day long <laughs> and uh, make a few enemies along the way. But my question is always, tell me what I've said that does not fall in line with scripture. Right. But if you can't, then you being angry with me because I bring up a point, my friend. That's my one soapbox. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. No, when you were in, you were on staff at Grand Rapids International, that church was pretty diverse. You had, well, I know you had a lot of Indian, right? 21 cultures. Okay. So what do you think, what was it that made that work? Was there, is there like one or two things that maybe stand out that you think this is this is why that worked made it, able to make it gel a little bit better than in other places you've seen? Let, let me back up. There were twenty one countries, okay, and multiple cultures, okay, um, on a given Sunday when when I left. I think there were several things. One of the things that the people of Griff did well is that they were willing to develop relationships. The The gospel is relational. In this season, we are finding more. You just can't share it and walk away. You have to live it. 
Jesus walked with the disciples for three years to show them that it was possible to live a certain <laughs> way. And I think as Christ followers, maybe we should consider that maybe there's some living with that has to happen so people know, oh, it is possible yes. to live Got for it. Jesus. And and I think we like to go in, share the gospel, and then get out. And it really isn't that way. And so that's what you were seeing. You were okay. seeing people who were coming alongside. They were going to the home of these individuals who were either refugees or immigrants who were coming to the church to get English as a second language. Well, they were finding friendship right. and they would go to the home of families who were coming and they'd eat meals with them. They'd go to their weddings and they would go to their celebrations. And let me tell you, as an American with an American palate, some of these places, <laughs> I'll never forget there was uh, uh, some Sudanese families had this big party and they made this incredible spread of food. But one of the, one of the big, it was a big pot of the soup okay. and it had peanut butter in it. Fortunately, they had other things, but they're so excited right. to share their culture. And remember, a refugee isn't here because they want to be. They've been plucked out of their country. So to help them feel at home, by going in their home. Huge. We develop this idea. Christians, we sometimes can have this idea that people need to behave huh? before they believe, before they belong. And we have this idea that people could belong first because you had refugees who were Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, who needed community. And so we said, you know what? We'll be community. We'll be distinctly who we are, but we'll be community. And as a result, there was a lot of Hindus and Buddhists and some Muslims who were coming to Christ all because the church, yeah. you were my friend. Yeah. And we could be friends even if we had different cultural or different religious backgrounds. Right. One particular guy, Rao, he used to drop his wife off. His wife's name was Lucky. Rao would drop off Lucky for English classes and he would sit around and wait because he didn't have any friends. Mm -hmm. And Larry Tester, a guy from the church, see him hanging around and he started sitting and talking to Rao and, and they started hanging out and Rao and Lucky would cook dinner and Larry and his wife Marsha would go over and eventually Joe Knight said, you know, we knew he worked in technology. Joe said, hey, Rao, would, would you be open to preparing my message slides? Give you the information and you make the slides and Rao started doing this. So you have this Hindu man who is preparing message slides on Sunday mornings and he's coming every Sunday along with his wife. Rao and his family got saved probably Two and a half years in, Rao is now serving on the church board. Um, uh, they have a son, and they consider Marsha and Larry their American parents. Jay, their son, calls them grandma and grandpa. I mean, uh, it is it is such an amazing story. I think that was the key of why Griff was successful and has been successful at being multicultural because they see people as friends when they walk in the door. As much as I've hyped on how great Griff is, Griff had its issues. One of the issues is Griff had to really, and has, I think, had to really work at not having the savior mentality. And that can be very easy. The ability for these individuals to overcome and persevere is amazing and they wouldn't always see the immense value that the they were bringing to the table i think that was that has been why griff 
has been so successful at it. They were very intentional. They also weren't afraid to be intentional about making sure people of color was on their church board. Because sometimes the pushback you get is we don't want to pick someone because they're black or they're Hispanic. No, you're putting them there because you know people have a see a barrier right. when they look at them because they're black or they're Hispanic. So it's not about tokenism. It's about recognizing that equity isn't existing here. And so when they look at so-and-so, they they do see that, that that's just a reality. You know, they were willing to say, okay, even at the risk of people assuming that we're doing that, we think it's important because if we don't, we are still conditioned that maybe this person wouldn't be able to do it. And we, w- we don't want to be honest with ourselves and say that mm-hmm. race is, is a bit of a barrier, but it is. All of us got it. You know, I can walk in a room full of white people and be like, oh, Jesus. Because I walk in a room full of white people, I've already made the assumption that I have to arm myself. Well, that's because I have some preconceived notions about white people. I need to admit that, pray through that. Oftentimes, I did, Lord, help me to see everybody in this room like you see them. You know, I'm not, even though I know this stuff, I still have moments where I think, Ooh, there's too many white people for me. And God is saying, honestly, Sharon, honestly. So that's just being honest. And he has to help me dial that back. Like, these are my kids. I've sent you to do a work. Do it. Yeah. Stop looking on the outside. I am. I sent you here because I was looking at their heart. Don't get in the way of what I've sent you to do. And there are times where you got to call me on the carpet on that. You... How did you go from the Baptist church to the Nazarene church? Were you just like done with the Baptist church? Or did someone invite you? Or how did that transition happen? No, I was absolutely not done. I, yeah, in 2000, I moved to Memphis, Tennessee. God told me to pick up my stuff and leave. And it was, it followed a season where that second work of grace happened in my life. December 1999, I felt God draw a line in the sand. Either you go all in with me or you stay on that other side. And I chose to go all in. And part of that was moving to Memphis. So I was in Memphis for two years. In the second year of being there, I, my husband and I were friends before I left. But after being gone a year, he called me and he said, the Lord has told me you are to be my wife. I said, okay. And 10 months later, we got married. And we've been married now 16 years. I moved back. I just felt that I could not go back to where God had plucked me out of. I came back. And I said to my fiance, I said, Brent, you know, God has done some significant things while I've been away. And one of the things I don't want to do is go back and take up all the habits that he was stripping me of. And so I am concerned about just returning to the church that I came from. And it's not that anything was wrong with the church. It was wrong with how I perceived my work and my role in the church while there. Very much uh, one of the people, I was a pastor's favorite person. I was a tither. I did church work for the sake of doing church work. It made me feel good and it made me feel important. God was detoxing me of that idea (laughs) in while I moved to Memphis. So when I came back, I said, I believe I need to spend some time away in a different setting. And he happened to be working with a girl who went to Griff and they were in need of a worship pastor. I submitted my stuff to Joe in February. I wasn't moving back until May. And Joe said, oh, we believe we'll have someone by then, but I'll just keep you know, your stuff on file. Come May, he still didn't have anybody. <laughs> now, were you ordained 
You were you ordained in the Baptist Church? Or no, I was ordained in the Nazarene in the Church, Nazarene and Church. I got ordained in 2015. So you're leading worship, and you're on staff, and then, hey, I, how did you go to that direction? Yeah, well, I had, I felt God had, knew that God had called me back in 1994 to preach. But in the Baptist Church, there weren't, Bap, missionary Baptist churches are, are separate. Being a part of the, the denominational uh, organization is like being a part of ARP. You know oh, what I mean? Gotcha, like you yeah. got membership, but you do what you want to. Okay. Use the perks <laughs> if you want. You know, it's just, so there is nobody from headquarters that's ever going to come down in your church to help you deal with church issues. Okay. It just don't work that way. And so some churches were open to women preachers, but most of the old school pastors were not. Right. I had an incredible pastor, but he was old school, and he just didn't believe women were called to preach. That would soften over the years, but then, so in 1994, um, I accepted a call to preach, but, you know, place. he just yeah. sat on And so in the Nazar- when I got to the Nazarene church, I was fascinated by the fact that they let women preach. Yeah. And then decided that we were going to join the Nazarene church. Okay. We both got locally licensed immediately um, right. and started the process of ordination. I got my district license and started, had started NBC in 2011. I had been waiting 20 years. Yeah. You know, for that moment. My leaving the Baptist churches wasn't because I I felt God was calling me away from it, but mm-hmm. God was calling me something. God is calling me, you know, the church that made me mad, so God is calling me to leave. That's right. not how we work, but it. don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no. I was good. I could have gone back, but I really believed that God had cleansed me of some things, and it would have been too soon to go back. I would have picked up those right. habits again. And here, you know, going into culture that's not mine was so, it was interesting. It was very humbling. And, but I believed wholeheartedly and still believe and still very clear about what God called me to. And, and part of that, that moving me and that transitioning me in Memphis uh, I realized that part of the role that I get to fill in the Church of the Nazarene is one as a reconciliator. And there there are significant things you do have to give up if that's the role you're going to take. Because you do find yourself having to be Switzerland. Yep. You have to be able to fit everywhere. And so anybody who who you'll talk to who is of one culture, than different culture than the culture where they serve in, you find at some point you just don't fit anywhere. Oh, so, yes. Like, mm-hmm. I, I still feel at, at moments where I'm a visitor in predominantly white cultures, and I feel like a visitor in predominantly black cultures. Part of that is, and so you're just kind of in this, this middle space because you just don't fit anywhere. I can't do three-hour church anymore. <laughs> I, I guess. We've, we've ruined like, you. We've ruined I'm, you, Sharon. <laughs> I know. It's like my white friends done taught me a new way of life, and it is not being a church for three hours. Jesus showed up an hour and a half ago. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, but seriously, so there's some things that are, you know, but at the same time, I can walk into a church and everybody's quiet. And if you say a word that hit me, I'm going to say amen. Mm-hmm. And then everybody turns and looks at me. They'll be egging the preacher on. It's, you're uncomfortable in every setting. Although you can feel at home. And I do. I, I mean, I feel at home. But there is 
just this gentle rub. And part of that is, I think, as a reconciliator, you, you just don't get to go all in over here or all in over there because you have to figure out ways to bring people together. And sometimes that's but softening some of the things that we just desire in our own individual cultures and being willing to say, for the sake of my brother, for the sake of my sister, I'm willing to enter in here so that we're together. That's not easy. So it almost sounds like you didn't really have, like for me, there was that whole wrestling with, you know, can I really preach if I'm a woman and all that? It doesn't sound like you had a whole lot of that. Like once God said, I'm calling you to preach, then it was just a matter of him directing you to a denomination that would honor that call, right? Yeah. Now, I will say, you know, I hear my sisters, um, and I lament with my sisters who have had struggles to live out their calling wholeheartedly. I had the struggle in the sense of being in the Baptist church, but I never, I don't know if I never counted it a struggle. Even the concept that what God has for me is for me, and I've lived on that. I think I have experienced more pushback or more struggle as a result of being an African-American than a woman. And in some ways, I think I think in the Nazarene church, being an African-American and a woman has helped me because I feel two quotas. Yeah. And, and also, I'm not offensive to white people in general. And that can be tough because it can be really quick to turn into the angry black woman or the right. angry black man. My method has always been easier to win them than to convince them. If you win them, they'll always consider your side. If you're sitting there trying to convince them, they're going to die on their heel, whatever it is. That is how I have lived life with the the concept of winning. I'm an extrovert. I think everybody should be my friend because I'm an awesome person. That's just... Well, you are an awesome person. (laughs) I have not had... I've had great opportunity. My singing has probably led the way more in that than anything. But I've been now at Saginaw Valley for June. We came in June, but I had travel dates. And I am preaching two-part series on in the end of September. Okay. So I have not had any backlash. And Randy was extremely open. He was like, I had asked for one Sunday. He was like, do you want two? Do you want to make I'm like, okay, dude, hold on a second. <laughs> that week in the lectionary really fits with prayer. And I really wanted to do a message on prayer. And he was like, no, you can do two. Do you want? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I have not had the pushback at all. I was able to preach at First Church. But again, my primary role was worship pastor. And there were six other pastors on staff. I have not been in settings where that's been an issue. I've been, every staff I've been on has included women. At First Church, there were times where there were more women than men. My story has not included someone telling me I can't or dismissing me or dismissing my voice because I'm a female. I haven't had that experience in the Nazarene. What's interesting I have watched it take place. One of our, one of the ladies, she has a softer voice. She had given this idea 20 minutes before. And then there was this round and round. And then one of the guys said, well, I think we should do that. It was the same exact idea. <laughs> and the senior pastor was like, that's a great idea. And I'm like, okay, she just said that 20 minutes ago. Yeah. And why yeah. was a great idea 20 minutes ago? You know, that was a moment. Where, you know, and we made it a teachable moment. It was, and he acknowledged, I'm so sorry. I I didn't realize that I had just overlooked that. I apologize. And it was, yeah, 
you could have saved us 20 minutes. Stop being too much of a man. Please. Yeah. There are there have been a few moments where, yes, I've seen it happen. I've been able to sneak into it. But on the regular, I just have not been around leaders who, let me say this, in where I've had some cred or credibility with those leaders where I can say something, those people are all about women in their pulpit to those who are my fellow sisters who struggle with this. But I think my message is pretty much always the same, what God has for you. And mm-hmm. when I served with um, Olivet students, the young women, I would say, you know, here's the thing. God will make space for you. If you get sidetracked by the things that happen around you, you may miss where he's making space. Right. God called you. Not simply because you are a woman. He called you because you were created in his image and he wanted to use you. Your womanhood in your eyes can be a plus or a minus. And if you live it like it's a plus, it doesn't matter how many minuses show up. Because it can be very easy uh, and quickly we go down the slope where we just live there. And that's the same thing with being an African-American. Or any other what's considered a minority, if we live whatever that adjective adjective is, whether it's woman, minority, if we live there, we may miss the greater thing in being created in his image. And I've always tried to be careful of that. I've never wanted to appear with a chip on my shoulder as a woman or an African-American, because I don't think God calls me to that. And I think he's given me freedom. And I don't have to, and I can be free in knowing that what he created is perfect and right. And the anointing he's placed on my life, he will spend it where he wants to. All hell can't stand against that. Will you just share some of the, you know, the women that are coming behind us, right? So part of this podcast is tell our story um, in ministry, but then to help those who are coming behind us. What would you tell a young woman or an older woman, but someone who's starting to discern God's voice about this call and wrestling with that call? And I don't know if you want to speak specifically to African-American women or if you want to speak to all women or what is something knowing now, what you, if you knew then, what you know now kind of a thing. The first thing I would say is listen the first time. Stop waiting for someone to affirm what God has spoken to you. Yes. Now, I believe that God sends those to do that. And I believe affirmation is important. But I believe if we only wait for affirmation, we miss the beauty of learning to hear his voice. And I think affirmation comes in obedience. Can it come before obedience? Absolutely. But I also think it comes in obedience. When you hear the voice of God speaks to you through his word, obey, period. If God has called you, don't let the variables around you dictate your listening. And sometimes we do. And also don't let the variables in your internet narrative dictate the listening. Don't let the I'm not good enough. I'm not. Don't take on a Moses mentality. I'm not good enough. God sent somebody else. I can't do it. My husband won't like it. My God will, if God is calling you, he's already got the answers to some of the, to those things. Easy. When we don't see the immediate answer, we decide that God, this couldn't be what you want. No, it's called faith for a reason. You know, faith faith is believing what you don't see. It doesn't take faith to believe what you see. It's there. The second thing I would say is you are good enough. One of the realities with a lot of us in the sisterhood 
is always fighting against the good in us because we can have the narrative, the, the, our histories that -hmm. could have told us we're not, we can have the relationships that we've picked up in our life that has told us we are not, we can have the world and the imaging and the imaging shame that happens that tells us we're not good enough. And the thing I would say to you or the woman listening is you are more than good enough. You were created in his image. You are an image bearer. Of course you're good enough. God didn't mess up when he made you. When when the psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that was a message that we could take on and own ourselves. Yes. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. When God tells uh, the Israelites, I have called you by name, that's a message we can own ourselves. He summoned us and called us by name. My sister, you are more than good enough. And, you know, we talk about this idea of perfection, and we usually use the the definition that we take from our English understanding. But perfection, scripturally, is fulfilling the purpose in which it was created. There's a purpose in which you were created, and God wants to perfect that in you. And it's not going to look like what the next woman looks like. It's not going to walk like what the next woman Mm -hmm. walks like. But he created you with a purpose that he wants you to fulfill and it can't be duplicated. It's yours. I can't, I can't no more be you and you can't be me because God created us with a purpose in which he desired us to fill. And there's, there is a world who needs Joanne. There is a world that needs Sharon. There's a world that needs Sarah. There's a world that needs Amy. There's a world that needs Shaniqua. There is a world, there's a world that needs who he purposed and he created, there is a world that needs it. To every sister who walks this journey, draw near to God, listen, obey the first time, and remember you are more than good enough to do what he's called you to do. Otherwise, he wouldn't call you. And not only that, he is going to equip you. So what you feel you don't have, there is a, a, a reservoir of resource in the Father that he's promised through his spirit. And if we're willing to walk in his spirit, we will have everything we need. I needed you 10 years ago. (laughs) So, so what, what do you do when you need to de-stress? I need a break from all this. What, what's your go-to? Okay. I have two go-tos and uh, don't judge me, (laughs) but I love criminal mind. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) That is one. Like, I own several of the series. Okay. I love Criminal Mind. (laughs) The other thing, which is probably less dark, (laughs) is I love beading. I love making jewelry. I had taken a a hiatus. I started it years ago and did it quite a bit, sold my work and all that other stuff. And then my second child came along and... (laughs) Uh, that changed things because she was into everything. And if anybody knows anything about mm, beading, just, there are tiny beads oh, there. Yeah. And I could only see that child having trips to the ER for beads <laughs> in the nose and swallowing. I stopped. When we moved here two months ago, that same second child, I haven't beaded in probably several years. That same child pulled out my beading kit and she said, mom, can we do this? So she and I do be, we do beating together and it's so sweet to watch her because she'll be doing it. She says, mom, this is so peaceful. (laughs) And it's like, yes, she gets me. My older child doesn't get it. 
And so she and I are actually taking a, a trip uh, in a few days to, we have an indoor farmer's market here in Saginaw. Nice. And inside is a woman who sells beads. It's called the Purple Haze. Okay. And so we are going to go down there and have way too much fun. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> thing, I think being able to do creative things, beading would be top. So whatever you create is whatever you create. This has been great, a- and you get, you're one of my first five podcasts, so I'm looking forward to everyone hearing your story. Well, thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. That was just very kind. It was just an honor to do so, and thank you for the work that you do in, in making sure there is a voice for women, and they can hear voices that affirm them and speak into them. So thank you for that praying that God will use us to affirm that those he has he has poured his spirit out on mm-hmm. in women form that they will be empowered because of it. Mm-hmm.